Would you take your Bibles, please, and turn to Revelation. Revelation chapter 2. I began a series on the seven historic churches of Asia Minor. The Apostle John has a message to give to each one of these churches. And although each of these particular historic churches had very special needs. Every church that exists today has some very specific needs as well. Last week we looked at the church that was located in that very well-known city of Ephesus and the subject was staying in love. It's easy to have everything right on the outside, right doctrine, right works, Right, stand for God and forget that God looks very, very highly at our heart attitude. And it's very, very easy to fall out of love with God. Uh, you can truly be a child of God, but if you're not careful, you can allow sin to come to your life and thereby fall out of love with God. You can allow distractions to come, wrong priorities, and many different things can get in the way and we get sidetracked from what God really wants each one of us to have. Now, for those of you specifically that listened to the message last week, I hope you remembered some of those things during the week and said, I need to stay in love. That's what God wants me to do. Now, keep the sound doctrine Keep serving the Lord. Don't stop doing those things, but make sure you're in love with him. And the writer of Jude says, keep yourselves in the love of God. We're not talking about losing your salvation. If you've truly been in Christ, you have eternal life. But the Lord wants us to stay in fellowship with him. And that comes through our connection with the word of God and ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now we're going to look at the second church that the Apostle John speaks about, and that's found in Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. This is a church located in a city called Smyrna, about 35 or 40 miles north of the city of Ephesus, a very strategic city, very well known uh, for those who have done history. Uh, they understand and have gotten a lot of information about what this, how this city was existing, what they were involved in in the first century times. Now I want to read verses 8 through 11. I would like you to pay attention carefully as I read this, and then I'll have a brief word of prayer. Remember as you see this message going to an angel, the word angel is really the general word messenger, and it's either a not is spirit being as we talk about angels but it's very likely it was either a representative of the church or the pastor of the church as this message is coming there so we're going to look at this beginning in verse 8 and unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write these things saith the first and the last which was dead and is alive I know thy works and tribulation and poverty but thou art rich and I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. 
fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. Heavenly Father, may your Holy Spirit minister to our hearts now. You have a message for us, Lord, and you do indeed want us to stay in love with you. And you want to be able to look at us as believers, as a church a family. You want us to be able to look with favor, be able to see us standing for you, following your ways. We thank you for the testimony of this church that we'll be looking at now. And I pray that you would help us, that you, your spirit would work and change us and help us move more in the direction of pleasing you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of the message today is Commendation to a Struggling Church. Now, I don't have to tell you this, but all churches go through struggles, especially those who firmly stand for the truth. We cannot escape this reality. Struggles do come, and Victory Baptist Church of Broadisville is no exception. I don't have to talk about the details about it. Victory Baptist Church has had struggles through the ages. And we have no assurance that those struggles, some of those struggles may continue. If you think that you will find a church that is immune to problems, keep on living in your dream world, you probably will be on search for a long period of time. And if you do happen to find a perfect church, don't join it or you'll ruin it. We live in a world that is under the curse. And in the midst of being under the curse, God has chosen a plan in the ages past, which we call a church, a local church, a body of believers were called out together to serve, to glorify God, to rejoice in him, to win people to Christ. Now, please do make the distinction between church buildings. I alluded to that a little bit about this village in Liberia. They want a church building, but there's more to it than just a church building. We know that the reality of a church is the people of God, and that's so important. But with that comes along, the problem is that we are sinners. Sinners saved by the grace of God. We know Jesus Christ. But we're going to have some times where we don't do what God wants us to do. Now, some churches struggle, and I say all should say all churches struggle, but some struggle and become stronger. And the church of Smyrna, they struggled in the midst of severe persecution. And they, from what we can understand, didn't become weaker. They actually became stronger and received the commendation of the Lord. There's no rebuke to this church. There's only one other church mentioned of the seven that's on this line, and that's the Church of Philadelphia, which we'll look at some weeks down the line. But this church of Smyrna received commendation from the Lord. In light of that, I would like you, and I want to challenge you, 
uh, this morning for these moments to live in such a way that you receive the Lord's commendation. Now, he knows we're not perfect. He knows everything about us, so we're not looking at We have to be perfect, although we should head in that direction. We realize that it's by the grace of God that we can live in a way that brings the commendation of the Lord. So as we think about that, and you do some introspection, ask yourself the question, am I living in such a way, if the Lord looks at me and he sees me and he knows me, that he's going to really have words of commendation. Now, if indeed we want the Lord to have this commendation or life, I suggest to you there should be some distinct characteristics. And this is not all-inclusive. There are various and sundry characteristics that believers ought to have, but from this text, we want to emphasize the importance of some specific characteristics of this particular church. Now, one of one of the points in the outline is really talking about the nature or the state of the church existing right in this particular city of Smyrna. The other two that we're looking at in the outline characteristics are actually admonitions that the Lord wants of them. He is not, he's not accusing them, he's not rebuking them, but this is the desire of the Lord for this church. And I would say they ought to be our desire as well. So first of all, the first characteristic, if we want to have God's commendation, is choose to live in such a manner that the Lord sees you as spiritually rich. Now, you, if you listen to the text, I read this, the Lord who knows everything says this, I know your works, your tribulation, and poverty, and here's a little statement we don't want to lose sight of, but you're rich. That almost sounds like a contradiction, but if you understand the Bible, you understand that God uses these paradoxes to emphasize a point. Let me just give you a little background to the city of Smyrna. This was a very wealthy town. But this church in Smyrna was not merely poor, and there is a word in the Greek language for poverty, but this is abject poverty. This is not just having a little bit. This is like basically having nothing. So we don't know exactly why they were impoverished in this city. We can kind of deduct it may have been because of the persecution that came upon them. Now, we talk about the subject of poverty, and certainly poverty is a relative term. Uh, we have, uh, I heard something recently that 100 years ago, everyone had a horse, and only those who had a car were considered rich. Now, that's flipped around a little bit. Everybody has a car or two, and if you have a horse, you're considered rich. So things have changed a little bit. I realize that... Um, Wealth and this whole concept of, of who's rich and who's not rich is, can be a relative thing. I, I did hear uh, this a few years ago that the average median income, household income in a particular city, I think it was New Jersey, I'm not totally sure, the average salary was $1 million per year, each household. 
That's not Monroe County, I don't think. But nevertheless, uh, if you lived in that particular area, if you earned $100,000 per year, you were considered poor. Well, I'd be happy with $100,000. I'd figure out a way to live it, even if it was a wealthy area or expensive area. Well, <clears throat> we, we understand that the subject can be somewhat subjective. I acknowledge that uh, there are rich people in this world by human standards. I mean, it's just mind-boggling. There's a French fashion designer, Richard Arnault, the richest man in the world at this point in time. <clears throat> He's worth $215 billion. All right, how much is that? Well, let's, maybe we'll, we'll kind of break that down a little bit because some of you can understand millions or have a hard time grasping billions. That means he is worth 215,000 million. Help some of you understand that? Some of you are in that, you, you can understand. I, I can't. Uh, do you realize how, if he spent $1 million per year, all right? $1 million per year. That's not making any money, no earnings at all. $1 million per year. It would take him 215,000 years to spend all his money. I'm in shock when I read these statistics about it. But the question is, though he's materially rich, is he spiritually rich? And you're probably correct on that one for so many people uh, who have lots and lots of wealth like this or find their security in wealth. Now, um, just a little, slight little diversion from this, but certainly applicable. As much as we might be impressed to a certain extent, well, that well, if you have very, very little materially, and you have Jesus Christ, you are far more wealthy than that rich man that we just talked about. So, we're not talking numbers about this church in Smyrna. He says, I know you're impoverished, but you're rich, and in Christ we are. It is possible for the Lord to see you as rich, though you are materially impoverished in relationship maybe to others. Remember the widow spoken of in Matthew and Mark chapter 12, who the Bible talks about these people were putting in a lot of money into the offering at that particular time. And yet this widow took all her substance. She had just two little coins and she put that into the treasury put that into the offering in the temple, and the Lord commended her for that. She put in more than all the others, percentage-wise. So which is more important, being rich spiritually or materially? How do you answer this question as it works out practically in your life? We are so culturally affected that if we're not careful, we can feel insecure, we can compare ourselves with others, we can become discontent because we don't have what we like to have. And oftentimes, there are not, <clears throat> not needs 
oftentimes their wants. But you can be spiritually rich and God can look you as spiritually rich if you have a vital relationship with Jesus Christ. And this was true of the believers, the church of Smyrna. They were in Christ. And because they were in Christ, they were rich through the new birth. You, you and I, I'm sure I would say that none of us really grasp hold of the fact that once we call upon Jesus Christ to save us, whether a child, teenager, later on as an adult, and we really mean this, we turn our life to the Lord, regardless of where we're at economically, immediately we become spiritually wealthy. You hear you sing the song, he owns the cattle in a thousand hills, the wealth in every mine. You know, it's uh, occasionally I've just kind of joked about this. Somebody asked me some questions or whatever. I said, I want you to tell, I want to tell you something very wealthy. I said, I have a father who owns the cattle in a thousand hills. Now to use that as a platform to talk about this, I don't have a whole lot on this side, but I have a father who's very rich. You can become very wealthy, and you do become very wealthy through this spiritual birth in Christ. We're heirs, joint heirs with Christ. And then through an abiding fellowship with the Lord, John 15 emphasized this about being in the vine and having that fellowship with the Lord. Indeed, as you walk with him, serve him, you are rich by, by God's standards. I mean, we have a peace that the world doesn't give. We can have a joy that the world doesn't have. God puts a love in our hearts that we wouldn't naturally have. And many, many other wonderful blessings that are given to us. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 speaks about this, about the churches of Macedonia who were very, very poor, just like this church of Smyrna. But they gave sacrificially to the poor saints in Jerusalem. And he talks about them as being very wealthy because of their vital relationship with Jesus Christ. When the Lord sees you, and you know he sees you, right? You know he understands everything. I mean, I, I mean, you could be driving a Maserati and maybe every week drive a different one. I've heard some people have several of these very expensive sports cars. And I could look at you and I say, you are poor. You, hmm, you don't belong there because that's a church. <laughs> I could look at that and think you're very wealthy. Well, you may have stolen those cars. Who I don't know. I, I really don't understand. Maybe, you know, you just got them on credit, whatever. But God sees everything about us. But what he's primarily looking at is, are we spiritually rich in him? Do you know? Sure you know that there are people who are truly children of God. But they're not living in the riches of God. They've given up. They've quit. They've got loud worldliness to come in. And they've got everything from the world standpoint. But they're impoverished spiritually. Don't be like that. The Lord wants you to be rich in him. So there's a characteristic. I, I, I think every time you read this passage, you ought to 
maybe just circle, underline, highlight, you're poor, but you're rich. And we want to be that way as well. All right. Notice another characteristic, and here's an admonition. Live fearlessly through suffering. Fear none of those things. And, of course, we will talk about some of those things. He's talking about suffering. Besides poverty, they were going through a period of time of suffering during the Apostle John's writing. He's up in years now. But there was an emperor by the name of Domitian. He was ruling around this time from 81 AD to 96 AD. Emperor worship was made compulsory for every Roman citizen, every citizen, even if they were not a Roman citizen. And failure to comply meant death. Each year, reading a little of the history of this, each year every citizen had to burn incense on Caesar's altar, after which this person received a certificate. Without a certificate, there was a risk of death. Now, I don't want to get into vaccine passports, uh, but, you know, sometimes I start thinking, oh, they start pushing these things on us. As there's, are there some similarities here? You won't be able to travel unless you have this thing and this thing and this thing. Well, this is even far more dangerous than that. If you didn't have a certificate and you got caught without that certificate, it was a death penalty. Right? This is, this is the city of Smyrna. This is what's going on. About 50 years after the Apostle John's time, a man by the name of Polycarp was burned alive at the age of 86 as the 12th martyr in Smyrna. Are you getting a little bit of an idea? This is a very volatile time. There were six types of slander brought against first century Christians. Believe it or not, cannibalism. There were accusations that when they had these love feasts together, fellowship together, that people were eating each other because, you know, they took the idea, eat, eating flesh, you know, the blood, drinking the blood of Christ and so on, and they said they were cannibals. There was uh, the accusation of lust and immorality, the breaking up of homes. These were all accusations coming against the Christians that they were atheists, that they created political disorder, that they actually helped light fires in Rome. And it, there was a lot of slander going against the Christians. So in the midst of this persecution that existed, Christians would have naturally, I mean, they're human beings, would naturally have felt a rather fearful about what is out ahead. Has that ever happened to you? Have you ever felt like, well, I hope things don't get worse. How could they get any worse? I mean, it's, I don't want to say every day, but I'd say fairly regularly I'm hearing some news and I kind of have this flicker, this flutter, like, oh, no. Can that be? Everything's going crazy. The old expression is everything's going to pot. It's worse than that. We're just seeing a manifestation of the reality of the sinfulness of mankind. It's coming to the surface in every which direction. I was interacting with Susan recently. I said, you know, kind of what I'm hearing today kind of reminds me of the prophet Zechariah who talks about uh, these baskets and 
There was this one basket, a cover on, and the prophet is told to look in this basket. He looks in this basket, and oh, he sees this wickedness in there. And all of a sudden, the angel says, cover that basket again. Wickedness. And that was very, very much part of this particular culture. And along with that wickedness was this church that was a light that was standing for the truth. And John says in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, don't fear. Do not fear. Now, as we kind of look just briefly at the text here, understand where this persecution originates. And this church was under persecution. Who is behind these believers who are going to be put in prison? Uh, did, you, did you read the text? Have you read it before? The expression is, some say they are Jews, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Satan, the enemy, the devil, is behind this. Although we know that God supervises all trials of life for believers to make them stronger, this passage highlights that Satan is the culprit. Satan is about to cast some of you into prison. Now the Lord is telling them that persecution is coming. Severe persecution is coming. We don't know how many of the members. Maybe it was just the leaders of the church. We, we don't have that spelled out. But we do have this prophecy that some of them are going to actually have to go to prison for their stand for Christ. Persecution is there. And the expression that you may be tried is the most I can understand about this is that Satan is trying to get them to fall and give up and resign. We do know that God tries and tests people. Well, Satan's proposal is to discourage you, to entice you to quit, to fall away, to renounce your faith and some of those expressions I just used were certainly applicable to the disciples during the time that Satan was working so hard as Jesus was going to the cross. Jesus said to Peter, Satan has desired you that he may sift you as wheat. Can I pause here to say something to you? Though I am convinced the devil cannot take away your salvation, you're eternally secure in him. No man can pluck you out of my father's hand. While he can't take your salvation away, he can cause a whole lot of havoc. Deceive you, lead you astray, entice you, tempt you, on and on the list goes. The Bible says, be sober, be vigilant, for your adversary the devil walketh about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He can't take your salvation away, but he'd like to diminish your testimony for Christ. He'd like to put the light out. He'd like to slow you down. He'd like to just, well, it's not that big a deal. Everybody else does it. It's not that, I mean, after all, God's a forgiving God. And all kinds of excuses the devil can throw in your way and work with your sin nature and get you sidetracked from being a vibrant, living sacrifice the way God has called you to be. Don't just be a tiny little candle. Be a bright, shining light. Now, we're not talking about being braggadocious about being Christian. I'm just talking about living in holiness, living the right way. 
So John says, don't fear this persecution has come. Know that God uses persecution to test us. Though that doesn't seem to be specific in the text, we can go to plenty of other scriptures about this, and I do want to mention a few that I think just kind of mesh with this. Another church, the church of Thessalonica, where we have the Apostle Paul talking about persecution. By the way, the church of Thessalonica was under great persecution. Some months ago, we studied this, and the Apostle Paul had to leave the city abruptly because the persecution was so severe. Let me just read a couple verses here, First Thessalonians chapter 3. Wherefore, when we could no longer forbear, we thought it good to be left at Athens alone and sent Timotheus, our brother and minister of God and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ to establish you and to comfort you concerning your faith, that no man should be moved by these afflictions. For yourselves know that we are appointed thereunto. For verily, when we were with you, we told you before that we should suffer tribulation, even as it came to pass, and ye know. And for this cause, when I could no longer forbear, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter have tempted you, and our labor being in vain. You know what Paul is referring to? He's referring to the suffering that they're going through, and that God is going to help them. God's allowing this to happen. This is a testing period, and then I remind you of 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. Once again, a letter written to the believers who are going through persecution. Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations or trials, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise of and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. So, while Satan works havoc, he tries to work havoc upon this particular church and believers here. And he continues to do that against believers and churches today. We know that God, the sovereign God, superintends this and he, he allows certain things to happen that are very unpleasant. But his ultimate goal is not to trip us up and destroy us. His goal is to refine us, like gold is refined. And then, may I add to this a thought, remember that God puts his timetable in persecution. In this passage of scripture, it says that some of them are going to be cast into prison for 10 days. Now, I've been in prison a number of different times, and I'll clarify that statement in case somebody is falling asleep here. I've been in prison as part of a prison ministry counseling guys and, and trying to help them move in the right direction. My wife has also been in prison as well. I'll clarify, it's to counsel some people and, and, and we visited people in prison. But I've not been on the other side where I had to go there because the courts have found me guilty and I hope that doesn't happen, although I'm really realizing that more and more that possibility exists. Please don't come and visit me if you would bring me my books or something or other, some snacks or something, I don't know, you, you get in there. But uh, God says a very specific time for 10 days. I'm going to take this literally. We have a little rule of thumb in hermeneutics, uh, principles of interpretation, if plain sense makes sense, seek no other sense, any other sense is nonsense. And there's a lot of interpretation, it's thumb-sucking theology, as I call it, you know, it's just not there. 
10 days, okay? Let's take it for what it's worth. There are times when God uses figurative language. They're going to be in there for a set time. That leads me to say this, that even if persecution happens, God has a timetable for it. And it could be right up until the time I die. It might be for a limited period of time. In this case, they're going to have some of their people that are going to actually go to prison. And from what we understand, it's not because of criminal activity. It's because they are standing for Christ. Philippians chapter 1 speaks about how we are not to fear. And I want to read this because it, it does kind of apply really in so many ways to this. Only let your conversation, here's manner of life, your behavior, be as, as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. For unto you it is given in behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. So here's a characteristic that God wants us to have. He admonishes these believers in the midst of the persecution, and it's going to intensify. Fear not. I should not fear. I'm not going to quote or cite the scriptures, but if you go from the Old Testament and New Testament, this admonition is given over and over and over again. Do not fear. Do not be dismayed. For I am thy God. I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. I will strengthen thee. And God tells us the New Testament, Jesus was continually telling disciples, don't fear. Say, that's easier said than done. It's easier preached than actually put into practice. I will acknowledge that. But if I want to receive the commendation of the Lord, I need to learn to trust him in the midst of the trials and difficulties. And even if persecution comes. You want to be commanded by the Lord? Be spiritually rich. You want to be commanded by the Lord? When the problems come, difficulties come, and they will come. Even unpleasant ones. Maybe even persecution. Don't fear. Put your trust in the Lord. Here's a third characteristic. Live faithfully unto the end. Be thou faithful unto death. Now, we have no reason to believe that everybody in this church became a martyr. We know that there were martyrs at this particular time. I talked about Polycarp, who some years later died at the stake. They burned him at the stake. He was called upon to renounce Christianity. And some of his last words were recorded, and this is what he said, 80 and 6 years have I served Christ, nor has he ever done me any harm. How then, I, how then could I blaspheme my king who saved me? 
I bless thee for deigning me worthy this day and this hour that I may be among the martyrs and drink the cup of my Lord Jesus Christ. This is not just made up. These things are, we have that in history, recorded of what he said. Jews, Gentiles alike were in favor of him dying. And he stayed faithful to the end. God calls us to be faithful. Faithfulness is a lifelong commitment that is required by the Lord. Whether one dies by natural death or martyr, martyrdom or even we live and the rapture comes in our lifetime. One of my mentors was my, when I was a teenager, was my youth pastor at the Calvary Baptist Church in Lansdale. Terry Price was his name. What a model of Christianity he was. He was my coach, he was a teacher, youth pastor, but in college, played football under his direction. And when he retired from being a professor, coach at Maranatha Baptist College, uh, he decided that he was going to continue on in ministry. He came to church that I was pastoring at the time and uh, preached and so on. I remember him telling me this. He said, Paul, this is kind of an informal setting. He said, Paul, he says, I'm making a transition ministry. He said, but I have one desire, one main desire. I want to stay faithful to the Lord until the Lord calls me home. And the testimony of everybody who knew Terry Price, wife included, really knew him, was though he was not perfect, he was the first one to admit, he maintained faithfulness all the way to the end, and he went to, the Lord, went to be with the Lord very abruptly a few years back, shocking to, to so many of us. But he stayed faithful. Faithfulness is a lifelong commitment. It's not just, I'll try it out for a while and see if it works okay. It's not like getting a renewable contract. I think there's some people in marriages who like to have a renewable contract, you know. Five-year renewable contract. My marriage doesn't work out right. Well, I can, don't have to renew it and just, you know, you expire. Um, no, 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 no. Shouldn't be that way in marriage, I understand. But neither should it be with our Lord. And our relationship with him. Faithfulness, be faithful even unto death. So they didn't know who was going to die through martyrdom. They didn't know that. And we can assume that most probably did not. But regardless, that faithfulness was to be consistent all the way up to the end. Not quitting, not compromising, not being weary and well-doing. Faithfulness will bring great heavenly reward. We don't have it explained a great deal here. But he says, if you stay faithful, I will give you the crown of life. The word is Stephanos, and it was a word used in this particular time. Generally speaking, it was used in reference to a garland of victory, a crown awarded in athletic contests. So the people in the writing at this particular time would have understood this. There was a crown of victory. Now, we're not talking about athletic context. We're talking about spiritually. God wants people to stay faithful. Oh, I love this verse. It's helped me so many times. 1 Corinthians 15, 58, because of the resurrection. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. 
for your labor, and the Lord is not in vain. Oh, how we need to stay faithful to him. Now, you don't have to raise your hand, okay? You just think about this for just a few moments. Do you want the commendation of the Lord? Do you want him to be able to look at you and you know he sees you? And if he was to write a letter to you, a personal letter to you, we're not talking about overly flattering you, but would he write a letter of commendation to you? Or would he have some of the things commending you, but then like the Church of Ephesus, you're missing important things. May I encourage you, as you reflect upon this message today, to have a deep desire, say, I want the Lord to commend me. And I ought to have the characteristics of my life that are mentioned here. I want to be spiritually rich, and the only way I can be spiritually rich is to have a vital relationship through Jesus Christ and salvation. Repenting my sin, finding the riches in Christ. I want to have a vital relationship and fellowship with the Lord every day. Do you want to be spiritually rich? I know it's too glib for me to say, well, don't worry about the material things. We live in a material world, so they're not evil in and of themselves. But deep down in our heart, the Lord should look at us and say, now there's somebody who's in fellowship with me. They're poor, but they're spiritually rich. Do you want to have it so that the Lord looks at you and when you're going through the trials, you might be scared silly from a human standpoint, but you say, he'll never leave me nor forsake me. He told me, be with me even unto the end of the age. I have the Lord on my side. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. And we find ourselves having the peace of God in the midst of all the storms around about us. How's your heart? Are you staying faithful to him? Telling him, yes, you love him, but just being faithful to him? When you do sin, you don't hide it, excuse it, you ask God to forgive you. Get back up again and start living for him again? Are you obedient to him, showing that you do love him? I want the Lord to commend me, not because I'm a pastor, not because I'm here at Victory Baptist Church. That's irrelevant, really. But I know someday, someday, I'm going to have to stand before the Lord. And I'm reminded of what the Apostle John says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. And now little children abide in him, that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed at his coming. I don't want to be ashamed when the Lord comes. You don't either, do you? You want to have confidence. No, not perfection. But you know you did your best and you were faithful to him. Heavenly Father, my, I need you. I need you every hour. And we sing that hymn, but even beyond that, every minute, I need you. I want, I want to uh, be spiritually rich in your sight.
We've been blessed materially in so many ways, most, all of us, but Lord, what's most important to you is our hearts before you that are rich in you. Please, your God, when the trials come and persecution or disappointments come and fears naturally come, Lord, help us not to fear, but to trust you with all our heart, all our soul, not to lean to our own understanding and always acknowledge you and you will direct our paths. And Lord, may we stay faithful even to the end. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Keep your heads bowed, your eyes closed just for a moment. Time of reflection, time of invitation. It's not a time of uh, just, well, just another routine thing. But God's Spirit showed you something in your life. He's put the finger on some area where you need to get back where you've been before and you know you want to be back in fellowship. You want the Lord's accommodation, but you've got to get some things taken care of with the Lord. I don't know what that is. God's Spirit knows that. And he can show you that. You say, I want to give my life back to the Lord in a particular area. Tell the Lord where you're sorry. And recommit yourself to him. I'll not call your name out and embarrass you. I wouldn't do that, but I'd like to pray for you. Would you simply raise your hand and say, Pastor, pray for me. God's Spirit has worked in my heart, and there's a need that I have. Could I pray for you? Okay, you see that hand? Amen, I see that hand. Someone else? Thank you for your honesty. I see that hand. Thank you. see that hand. Thank you for your honesty. And even where you're at, why not just from your heart, in order to hear it, say, Lord, I want to give myself back to you. I really do. I, I, I've gotten off track, but I... I want you to forgive me, and I want to go the right direction. Do you know Jesus as your Savior? Are you certain that you've been saved? Not being a member of church or baptized, but where you've turned from your sin, put your trust in him. Do you need Jesus to save you? What do you ask him to save you? Say, I'm not sure that I have salvation, but I want to be sure of that. Would you raise your hand and say, so I can pray for you? Someone like that? Even now. You can pray and say, God, here's my life. I give my life to you. I want you to save me. Forgive me. Lord, for these who raise their hands, a special need they have in their heart, encourage them. Find forgiveness, restoration, resolve to do your will and to obey you, Lord. May they go from here rejoicing in your patience and how you work with us and your love. May, Lord, all be joined together in heart in living for you in this world that's so filled with disappointment and heartache. May we be, we be victorious in your sight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for your kind attention to, to God's word.